You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. I never wanted to live in the black swamp. Who would? It ain't a name that draws you in. You get stuck there, more like. Stuck in the mud and can't go no farther. So you stay there because there's land and no people, which was what we were looking for. James was the second youngest of six healthy sons, so there weren't but a little bit of good enough farm in Connecticut for us. We managed for a time, but James kept reaching for me at night, and the children kept coming. Then his father, an old killjoy who never liked me, started hinting about us moving west where we could settle more land. He got the wives of James's brothers to talk to their husbands, which they were glad to do because they didn't like me either. They didn't trust me around their men. I got something they didn't have. So the brothers started pushing James to be more adventurous than he was. Really, they should have gotten James's brother Charlie to go west. Charlie Goodenough was the youngest, and by tradition, he was the one should have gone... Plus, he had the gumption in him. Charlie wouldn't have let mud trap him in the swamp. He'd have bust through it and got out into the open where there's good, healthy land, solid under your feet, with sun and grass and clean water. But everybody loved Charlie, his wife most of all. It was she took against me the worst. Maybe she had reason to. Tracy Chevalier is the author of seven novels, including Girl with a Pearl Ring, Falling Angels, The Last Runaway. She's also the editor of the collection Reader, I Married Him, 21 stories by other writers inspired by Jane Eyre. Her new novel is At the Edge of the Orchard. Thank you for joining me, Tracy. Thank you for having me. Tracy, I'd like you to talk about building this world of the 19th century. I mean, it's so foreign to us. It might as well be another planet. It reminded me a little bit of uh, the, the <laughs> Mars that, that uh, Matt Damon has to put up with. Well, uh, it's, a, it's a tough life, and um, most of our ancestors were pilgrims of some sort, pioneers of some sort, came over from England or from somewhere in Europe and settled in the States. And eventually in the 19th century, there, there was this great push west. And we have this kind of vision from movies and from other books we've read of, of these covered wagons and the, you know, it's, it's all a very strangely healthy life and a happy life and it's sort of somewhat happy-go-lucky. Um, I think I based how I viewed Pioneers on the Little House in the Big Woods books, the books by Laura Ingalls Wilder, which I read as a girl. And Although they had tough times, they were a very close-knit family, very happy together, always pushing west to see if they could find more freedom and more land. And I think uh, At the Edge of the Orchard is a kind of response to that vision. Um, it's maybe a more realistic response, a darker response. My, I was trying to answer the question, 
what if you had a pioneer family where the husband and wife actually don't get along, who are fighting all the time? And how does that affect their children? And what do their children do? Can you, can you ever really get away from your family? I mean, we ask that now in the 21st century, but what about a 19th century boy who's, who's just witnessed a whole lot of violence between his parents? What does he do with that? And how far west does he have to go to get away from it? This book is so beautifully crafted both in terms of the way the chronology of the storytelling and the prose voices that you uh, find for the storytelling. Which one did you discover first, the voice that describes the actions of James and, and Robert or, or Sadie? Well, the the family in this book is called the Goodenoughs. So there's James and Sadie Goodenough, who are this husband and wife, probably should never have married. And they fight over apples, something as prosaic as apples. He wants to grow sweet apples to eat, and she wants to grow sour apples to make cider, to drink her troubles away, because they have such a horrible life in 19th century Ohio in the Black Swamp. And uh, then they have a bunch of children, some of who die from swamp fever, and then their youngest child, Robert Goodenough, is the son who ends up going west, and we follow his story to California later on. But um, most of the story is told third person, especially James and Robert, and uh, except for a few letters, and um, also Sadie Goodenough, who is such a, she's cantankerous, <laughs> She's mean, she's a terrible mother, um, and she's very cruel. And when I imagined her, she just kind of sprang out of me fully formed and, um, and speaking in her own voice. So that, those sections are in the first person because I just felt that Sadie, it would have tamed her too much for somebody else to describe her life. She had to do it herself. I, I love Sadie's voice. She's so much fun. And she is like, uh, she is a rotten apple. <laughs> she is a rotten apple. But as she says at some point in the book, even bad apples, you can make something out of them. Apple apple butter, you can make cider out of them. Um, and uh, when I was writing her, I knew that people, that, that readers would have a strong reaction to her. But I tried to write her in a way that... There, you have some sympathy for her, too, because there are moments of vulnerability. She's really awful to her husband, to her kids, and yet you see these moments, for instance, when they're in town where she's isolated within the community. She just doesn't know how to make friends with other women, and she always does the wrong thing, and they go to a camp revival meeting. It's kind of the only way people got any religion back there. Then they'd have these big revivalist meetings, and she just she she goes around and she she notices at one point that she's having a great time and then people are sort of moving away from her giving her mean looks um and she was, she realizes although she doesn't even say it she knows that she's bothering people but she said it doesn't matter because there's so many people here i can just go off and join another group and they'll welcome me in until they throw me out so there's this feeling I hope the reader gets that as awful as she is, she's kind of a victim of circumstances. She's living in a terrible place. She's probably married to the wrong guy. And um, and she's feeling very isolated and vulnerable. I think you do a good job of keeping her as a kind of a propulsion point, too, for the plot, the way she moves the plot along. And yeah. I, I think that the uh, you have an interesting, really interesting sense of story in this book. The way you tell the story, the way you plot it out, the way you move the story, 
did you know exactly what how this was all going to play out or did you just start writing from the top of your head and say oh this is fun I knew a few things but you know I always try to have um to create have some spontaneity as well when I'm writing so I don't know everything that's going to happen but with this book the structure of it is that there are it takes place in Ohio in 1838 and then it jumps to California in 1853 to 1856 and it goes back and forth between the two um, and I always knew I was going to have it be in two parts like that have it be in two states and in fact two kinds of trees represent those two states um, in Ohio there's a there's all underpinning all, everything that happens are apple trees when um, when the good enough settle in Ohio, one of the requirements for settlers, if they wanted to claim a homestead, is that they had to plant 50 fruit trees to sort of say, look, we're staying here, we're not going anywhere. Um, and there's a lot about apple trees and the idea of trying to domesticate the wilderness, to cut out, to hack out from the trees, from the deep, dense woods of this swamp. It was a, so hard a to way cut to yeah back. to cut down trees and and to get the the roots out, to get the stumps out is really difficult. So that's that's one tree. And then when um, the action moves to California, we focus on redwoods and sequoias. And uh, Robert Goodenough has fled this sort of family trauma, gone all the way across the states and ends up in Gold Rush, California, um, which he doesn't, he's not a very good miner. He doesn't really like it, but he ends up in amongst the the sequoias um, in Calaveras Grove, and he suddenly finds his calling, as a as a he 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 suddenly finds his calling. He meets there an Englishman named William Lobb, who really existed, who was a plant collector who sent conifers, Californian conifers, over to England so that Victorian gardeners could plant them in their gardens. And uh, Lob was there to look at the giant sequoias and went, oh, people are going to love these in their garden. So he starts digging them up, and he ends up enlisting Robert's help, and Robert starts working for him. And it's the first time in all of this wandering, over 17 years of wandering, he finds something that means something and means a kind of peace to him. So I always knew that there would be two states, Ohio and California, two trees, the apple tree and the sequoia, and as it turned out, two real people. Uh, there's William Lobb in, in California, and back in Ohio with the apple trees is Johnny Appleseed. Good old Johnny Appleseed, the legendary, <laughs> who I knew so well from growing up reading storybooks about him and seeing the Disney film. And the reality of Johnny Appleseed is he's a very different, um, it's very different from the myth. It's so much fun to read about Johnny Appleseed. Yeah. He is not a Disney character, not even fit. He would not even be allowed in a No, Disney I think movie. Walt Disney is spinning <laughs> in his grave now. No, the way I found out about Johnny Appleseed is Michael Pollan wrote a great book a while back called The Botany of Desire, which mm -hmm. is about humans' relationship to plants. And one of the sections is about apples. And he follows in the footsteps of Johnny Appleseed, who spread apple trees throughout Ohio in the 19th century. And what Pollen discovered is Johnny Appleseed was actually a businessman. He was not this happy-go-lucky guy who spread, who gave away trees for free and said, oh, apples are great for eating. Instead, he was actually anticipating where settlers would go, go there before them, get the trees ready, and then sell them to settlers. And um, 
The other thing is that he grew apple trees from seeds. And when you grow apple trees from seeds, most likely the fruit will turn out sour. Because if you want a sweet apple, you have to clone it from another sweet apple tree. You take a, a bar, a piece of uh, the branch and you, you clone it onto another tree. And that's how you get sweet. And so he wasn't providing healthy eating. He was providing drinking material. That's what all those sour apples are for, for making cider and Applejack, which is what Sadie Goodenough gets addicted to. So whenever John Chapman, that's his real name, comes through on his canoe in, in Ohio to their farm, she's always very happy to see him because she knows it means there's going to be some more Applejack around. Her feelings about um, this business of grafting when she sees her husband do it, and I think they reflect some of the social feelings at the time, I'm guessing, are much like uh, many people's feelings towards genetic modification. I just couldn't help but think of the parallels between the two. Yeah, it's interesting that because John Chapman argues against grafting, say it's against God's way. should let God decide what these trees are going to produce. And if they produce uh, sour apples, well, then you're going to get some cider and, and uh, don't mess with nature is what he was saying and, and Sadie echoed. But uh, the reality is um, now all, all, you know, grafting has gone on for thousands of years. Ever since there have been apples, you know, people started eating apples in Kazakhstan, which is where they come from originally in Central Asia, made their way down through Persia to the Romans who brought them to Great Britain, and then the British brought them over to America. So actually apples are not even native to the United States. But in order to keep maintain sweet apples, you do have to graft, and it's been going on for forever. So any uh, fruit trees that you buy now are like will have been grafted. So you, if you can look, you can look at a tree that you plant, and the the um, one part of the, it's usually two different trees. So you see one bit coming up from the ground, and then about two feet off the ground, you'll see a little kind of strange change, and then suddenly a different sort of tree comes out. So this happens all the time. I think people just don't realize it. I certainly didn't realize Now you know. You've had a whole lesson in it from the book. (laughs) It must have been fun for you to research apples and apple trees and Johnny Appleseed. That sounds like a a real fun rabbit hole to dive in. Oh, yeah. I could have spent (laughs) hundreds of years in that rabbit hole, but I did eat a lot of apples. I tried different apples, and I'm, I'm delighted to say that although in the supermarket now you can only get five or six varieties, in um, at, at there's there's been this resurgence in heirloom apples growing unusual varieties both in the United States and and in England where where I live. Um, so at uh, farmers markets and at uh, you know farm shops and stuff, you can often find more unusual varieties. Like the the golden pippins you described don't. Uh, sound like any Pippin apple I've ever seen. No, they're um, they're really unusual. In fact, they're so uh, it, it's a, they call them a golden Pippin, and the real the name in England is the Pitmiston pineapple. They're these little tiny. They're really cute, tiny apples. Uh, they're never grown commercially. Uh, an old variety, and um, they taste like honey and nuts, and then at the very end, the aftertaste is of pineapple. And I, I chose them deliberately because they're an old variety from, um, they, they suited my purpose. And I found out also that George Washington brought these golden pippins, had them brought over from England, branches from a tree to graft in his garden at Mount, Mount Vernon, but they didn't take. But they did in Ohio in my book. <laughs> One of the things I think that's so interesting in this book is the uh, dynamic uh, 
character dynamics between uh, James Goodenough and his wife, Sadie. This right. is a truly dysfunctional marriage that's... Um, what's interesting is that we get to see a picture of marriage on the frontier, and as you mentioned, the frontier introduces a lot of incredible hardships yeah. on any human uh, existence, let alone a marriage relationship. But throw in a bad marriage, yeah. and <laughs> you have a fascinating novel. Well, I think it's like uh, any time you have um, hardship, something goes wrong. It either makes or breaks a relationship. Mm. So sometimes relationships or get stronger as a result of having adversity, of having problems. But this one was sort of broken from the start, and um, and the hardship certainly doesn't make it any easier. But yes, they um, they really should never have married, and uh, it's uh, she she probably should have married his younger brother Charlie, and she knows that now. But there's nothing she can do about it. She's stuck in the swamp. I like the the male dynamics too between James and uh, Johnny Appleseed and just the yeah. way I James himself is a really interesting character he is something like a, a, the closest to a tree that a human being can be <laughs> <laughs> wow I hadn't really thought of it that way interesting he he's a, he's a quiet man he's mm -hmm. very focused on his trees um, he doesn't want a lot of trouble, but uh, Sadie just pushes the wrong buttons and makes him violent. And um, I'm not saying it's all her fault, but he, she brings out a terrible side to him and, and vice versa. Um, but with, with John Chapman, Johnny Appleseed, comes through, and uh, the first time you read about him in the book, uh, James is very concerned about this kind of, he's a grizzled man with, who goes barefoot and, um, <laughs> and often stays with people to proselytize because he's actually Swedenborgian, which is this unusual Christian sect at that time. Um, and there weren't many in the States, but he actually plowed all of his profits back into making pamphlets about Sweden, Swedenborg principles, which he passed out. And he would go and uh, sell apple trees during the day to a farm, and then he would stay with them at night. And he'd, he'd eat with them, and then he'd, he'd uh, sit by the fire and talk about religion for a couple of hours. And uh, there are some wonderful accounts of people saying, well, you know— we didn't really understand what the hell he was saying, what he was talking about, but it was kind of nice to see a visit, have a visitor, so we didn't <laughs> mind. So he was really eccentric. But uh, when James meets him, he, 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 uh, he's, Johnny Appleseed is just sitting up talking and talking, and James wants to go to bed, but he's worried that if he leaves him and Sadie alone, uh, uh, that they might end up doing the wrong thing. So there is this kind of dynamic, a sort of animalistic dynamic between the two men of the of like you know the the mating call. It's almost like two men showing off for for the for the woman. Um, and 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 that's something that I'm sure that you know the Disney movie never went into. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. Uh, one of the things I think is really interesting in a book like this is to read about kind of, you know, the science of what goes on with mm. the trees, all of the saplings, the seeds yeah. um, on both sides. So let's start with the apples. You've talked a little bit about grafting. Um, in Ohio, it just sounds like this horrible place. Where is this black swamp? I mean, I 
It, I always thought of Ohio as like rolling fields full of weeds. Most of Ohio is rolling fields. The the Goodenoughs actually um, chose the wrong time to settle there. They waited too long. They go in the 1830s, and the only land that's left is the worst land in Ohio. It's called the Black Swamp, and it's just south of Toledo. So it's in the northwest corner of the state. And nobody wanted to settle there because it was full of the most stickiest mud ever. People only really stayed, as the Goodenoughs do, because they stop there because their wagons won't go any further. Either the horses break their legs in the mud, or the mud sticks so much to the wheels that you have to stop every half mile to scrape it off. And this is this is based on accounts, real accounts of this happening. Um, and the other thing is, it's, it's, it's very hard to grow anything in the Black Swamp. It's very swampy, and it's also full of mosquitoes um, who attack, you know, are there all summer. And there are also accounts I read of people saying they had to burn smudge pots for the whole summer to keep the mosquitoes away. They had to wear mittens. They had to wear wrap um, scarves around their heads to keep the mosquitoes out, and it still didn't work. And a lot of people got swamp fever, which was probably malaria at the time. They'd get it every year, like clockwork. And the Goodenoughs have ten children to start with, and uh, one by one they get picked off. So they only have five left by the time the book starts, the narrative starts. But this too was very common. So it was not a great place to settle, and it was only settled out of desperation. It's interesting to read the descriptions of swamp fever and to understand, to see how the medical understanding of the time applied to this and uh, the, the pleasures of a historical novel are, we can also, we're also seeing it simultaneously from our perspective of, yes, we know this is malaria. And, and so that must have been yeah. fun to write. Talk about creating that kind of, you know, exploring that division. I think you do this throughout the novel. Well, yeah, I think one of the tricks, the, the trickiest parts of being a historical novelist is not applying modern knowledge to, mm-hmm. um, to what we know, to, to what the, the narrative is. And it's so tempting sometimes to say, uh, to put words in the mouths of the characters. So, you know, maybe one of them would say, hey, we're getting bitten by mosquitoes, and then we're getting swamp fever. Maybe they're connected. But actually, they didn't think like that back then. No. They just thought it all came at the same time. It didn't mean that it was connected. And I couldn't have them say that. I just had to write it as I as I read it, which was there's a, a few books that have, have brought together accounts of living in the black swamp. So I based a lot of my research on that. Uh, and uh, But yes, there are often times when I want to make the characters maybe more political or the women stronger, more feminist. And I can't because that's not how they thought. It's a, it's a real, as tempting as it is, I have to hold back. Well, that's what's the fun is that we see, I like the kind of, this novel has no soft edges in it. It, it, it is well, very crispy focus. It is quite crispy, I suppose, but um, it it does. I would say that Molly is a little softer. When Robert Goodenough gets to California, he, he goes across America over the course of um, 17 years, and he goes to many places, and one person he meets in Texas is a woman named Molly, and uh, it's funny because originally I was going to have that just be a brief encounter and that was it. And then when he was wandering, Robert's wandering around California and I thought, you know, 
he really needs to meet Molly again because I think she needs to save him. And if I, I think we need her too. So I brought her back. I had her end up in California as well. And she's almost the antithesis of Sadie. She's much more accepting. She's very loving. and But she's quite tough too. Mm-hmm. And um, I fact, all the women in the book are quite tough. And I, I think that it's important to get that sort of balance. Like if you have somebody as monstrous as Sadie is, um, and all of these hard, crispy edges, you do need um, some sort of give somewhere else just to balance out the, the story. Well, I mean, for me at least, a lot of that give came in uh, the Calaveras Grove. Yes. I mean, yes. it's what a beautiful place. I'm, yeah, I'm taking you must have spent a managed to spend a fair amount of time there. I, I actually was only there three days, but I spent them wisely. <laughs> um, I, uh, I came out for research to California a couple of years ago, and I had a wonderful time in Calaveras Grove. It's about two hours east of San Francisco, and it's the first place where uh, giant sequoias were discovered by white people anyway. Now, I'm sure that Indians knew about them for centuries, but uh, it was in 1852, this hunter went, was, was chasing a grizzly bear and came upon these massive trees, and he started telling people about them. And um, uh, this being America, it's, uh, these two brothers uh, bought the, the land. They claimed the land uh, that had this grove of about 100 giant sequoias. And the giant sequoias are the ones that have, like, the diameter, the trunk is a diameter of 30 uh, feet across. They're absolutely massive. And... Uh, they, they aren't as tall as redwoods, but they're really huge. Uh, they're really wide across. And um, these brothers uh, claim, staked a claim on this grove, and the first thing they did was cut one of them down because they wanted to create a, a tourist destination. So they cut one down, and they made the stump into a dance floor. It's still there. You can go and walk on it now. Um, and then they, they built – I could never have made this up. This is the research – um, they, the, there's this really long trunk. What do they do with it? They build a bowling alley on it. Like bowling in 1853, <laughs> I'm thinking, what? Uh, and there, those sort of details were just um, uh, great fun. But I put Robert there. William Lobb is there. He went in 1853, the summer of 1853, and started collecting seeds. And I, I just thought it was the most magical place, especially there are two parts of the grove. One is much more you know, touristy in that there there are paths or like boardwalks to walk through the grove of trees. Um, but there's another grove that's a few miles south that you go and you park and then you have to walk a couple of miles in through the woods to get to it. And, and that kind of weeds out the people, the day trippers, you know. <laughs> so I went then, uh, went my, on my own, and it was, I think I only ran into two other people the whole day I went and there are these trees just in the middle of nowhere and they're really glorious and I was so glad I went because I I really prefer not to um, write something that I haven't seen or done so I could try to to describe these trees just from photographs but you don't really know until you've stood next to one what it actually is like so I was very glad I did that that makes me ask how was the black swamp the Black Swamp is, um, there's very little of it left, <laughs> luckily, <laughs> but there are little tiny bits of nature reserves mm-hmm. in the area that still preserve some of the swamp. And so I walked through the ones I could. And in fact, in one of them, I, I came across, I, I was attacked by a swarm of mosquitoes. And I had 15 minutes of misery running, literally running around with my, flapping my arms around to try to get rid of them. And 
Um, and then some other hikers came along and took pity on me and gave me some insect repellent because it was May. I hadn't thought I'd need it. And um, and I thought, wow, that was 15 minutes of, of the kind of suffering that the Goodenoughs went through for months every year. So at least that was like, uh, you know, in uh, research in action. <laughs> <laughs> well, suffering when, for my art, that's what it was. When you write about it, it certainly is fairly agonizing <laughs> as well. Um, I'd like it, the the dynamics between uh, Sadie and James are really intricately worked out, mm. and I think that you do a, a wonderful job. When you were creating this, did you kind of map out who was going to be where and when, and and to? I um I do a kind of combination mm -hmm. whenever I'm writing, whichever book it is, of of knowing the story in general, um, of knowing kind of the the journey that the main character takes. I mean, I think most stories are about um, somebody who changes in some way, because otherwise there's no story. So this book is really Robert Goodenough, their son's story, because he's the person who changes the most. But I needed to know what um, the arc of, of the story and how, for instance, James and Sadie, there's this kind of battle with, uh, with apples and how does that, how does that crescendo over time? So there were a couple of things that happened leading to the, the most dramatic thing that happens. I knew early on what that dramatic thing was. So I just had to build up to there. So it's a combination of knowing that, but also allowing myself the space when I sit down to write a scene, not always knowing what's going to happen, trying out different things. And it's not like the characters are writing it. Of course I'm writing it. Characters never tell me what to do. I do, I do control them. But, but sometimes I'll try this. Is that working? No. Cut all that out. Try something else. Um, just to see, just to surprise the narrative a little bit and to, um, to make it feel spontaneous. Because, you know, sometimes when a, when a story is so carefully written out, um, so carefully plotted out, it becomes, it loses its soul a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, I, I don't want to, uh, well, okay, well, I'm going to name a name. Um, years ago, I went, I was at the New York Public Library. There was an exhibition of writers' um, manuscripts, and there was an outline by Paul Oster of the New York story, one of the New York stories. And um, he, the outline was like, 30 pages long. It was incredibly detailed. It was like probably as long as the whole what he wrote was. And I just looked at that and thought, oh, man, that is that would be the kiss of death for me. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not for him. It works for him, and that's fine. But I need to have a little bit more spontaneity to it. I love the the letters. I always love a good uh, epistolatory novel. And someday I want to write a whole one <laughs> if I can get away with it. Yeah, yeah. Well, there there are two. As I mentioned before, there are two sections. There's the Ohio section and the California section, and there's a big gap of time between the two. And I um, didn't want. So Robert leaves when he's nine, and then he's like in his mid twenties when he gets to California, and. I didn't want the reader not to know anything of what went on. And so um, I have him write letters back to his family every New Year's Day. And they come from all over the place. They come from Detroit, from Wisconsin. He ends up going down to Missouri Territory, to Texas. And then finally, um, he's a minor for a few years in California. And uh, it was a kind of... Um, 
it was sort of shorthand for what was going on, the bigger picture. I didn't want to write a saga where, you know, it would have been 700 pages to actually follow him all the way across the states and talk about what happened to him. Instead, I just wanted to do it in a quite compressed way and, and also an emotional way because he's reaching back to his family and he never hears from them because letters, um, you never really know back then. They take months to get to where they're going and sometimes they don't make it there. So he, he keeps not hearing back from them but writing hopefully anyway, thinking maybe someday he's actually going to get a, a, a letter by return. But uh, So that's, um, that was those letters and we won't talk about the other letters because they're the surprise. We don't want to give too much away. No, not at all. But I do want to read from just a little bit what he says is that um, when he gets to California, he says uh, I, about gold, he says, I have found plenty and not made much money because it is expensive to live here. This is <laughs> that so, ring a bell? <laughs> some things never change. And I think the way you paint, do, you do a great job of economically in those letters, taking us across the country in a way that's exciting and yeah. fun to read, easy to read, and grok, I mean, to understand the characters. Bang, we get uh, to California. And you do a great job of setting up the frontier economy over there. And I think that that's a, right. a difficult thing. It must have been a, uh, it's very complicated what's going on. Yeah, I, I hadn't quite realized until I started re- researching the California gold rush that very few people actually made any, very few miners made any money off of it. Um, Because what happened was this hyperinflation grew around them. They would be up in their mining camps, mining, and the people who provided them services were the ones who made the money. The people who sold them shovels and sold them sacks of flour, sold them firewood, or sold them horses or stabling, those were the things they charged an enormous fortune for it because they knew these miners had just been paid for their gold. They had a lot of money so they could get away with it. So that was one thing. And the other thing is that there was a certain lawlessness about the California at that time. There were very few women, uh, no, very few churches. So there's very few civilizing or limiting influences on, on all of these men who had a bit of money and so they all went nuts and they drank and they gambled uh also you know a lot of that sort of behavior and i read some fantastic accounts of san francisco it sounded like a pit an awful place i mean it's so different from now and um it was but it was very it was it was you know putting robert good enough of all people into that environment um he really did not thrive he needed to get out that's when he escapes to calaveras grove um because it's just not his, it's not his scene. And uh, I think that um, I was really surprised by all I learned about it. But yes, it is, it was an expensive place to live, funny enough. And it still is, of course. Your description of frontier California explains a lot of the present time. Yes. But you know, the other thing about this book is it really is about the American dream. Mm-hmm. And the American dream kind of grew out of the California gold rush. This idea that you could reinvent yourself and um, and make a lot of money and, and then put your feet up and have an easy life. Uh, there is this feeling that you can start over out in California, and that has remained to this day. There are still people who, young people think, oh, California, it's great weather, and uh, it's easier, and everybody has a great time, so um, I'm going to go out. And it's no surprise that Hollywood is here. That it was, you know, Hollywood could have grown up anywhere, but it could have grown up out in New York or Chicago or Miami, but instead it's California because this is the, the golden land where you can come and remake yourself. I, I think that uh, 
what however what happens to Robert is he does in a sense realize that the American dream slightly adjusted for modern, for our times in a sense in that he finds his true calling and he's able to live his true life and be his truest self. Yes, that is true. That is true. Um, but hand in hand with that goes a kind of uh, an echo from the past comes back and he finally has to face what happened in the past with his family. And um, and in order to be a, a, like a whole person, a, a satisfied person, he has to deal with that. So there's a, there's a scene when he gets, um, he goes out to see the Pacific Ocean and he's sitting there looking out at it and he realizes I've been fleeing west all this time and I can't go any further I can't swim what am I going to do I have to turn around and face what I've been fleeing and so the 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 being becoming a kind of tree agent which is what he does and and dealing with the past somewhat go hand in hand I think that I, I love the character of uh, Robert Lobb. He he is William Lobb. William Lobb. Yeah, William he Lobb. is so funny and and so interesting. And uh, his fate is is somewhat sad. So tell us a little bit about the research that she did for him and how you got to know him. So William Lobb was a plant collector. Um, also had a brother Thomas who was a plant collector. They are from Cornwall in southern England, and they started working for a nursery called Veach Nursery in the 1830s um, and in 18 in the 1840s Veach sent William and Thomas out to collect exotic plants to send back for Victorian gardeners to put in their country estates and in their smaller gardens too and so William Lobb first went to um, South America and he you know, he sent back like nasturtiums and begonias and all sorts of plants that now you see all over the place, but they were really exotic then. And uh, he brought he sent back to to England the monkey puzzle tree, which is this very bizarre looking tree from Chile that you see all over the place um, in the United Kingdom now. And then then he went up um, in the late 1840s to uh, California and the or- Oregon. Um, to start sending back conifers because uh, most trees in Britain are deciduous, so they lose their leaves in the autumn and winter. And the only there's only a couple of native UK native conifers that are evergreen all year round. And uh, Victorian garden, gardeners started demanding some exotic trees, um, some conifers that would remain green all year round, so they could have something more interesting in their gardens. And he started sending back, you know, ponderosa pines, Monterey pines, sugar pines, all these different pines and firs from the Californian Oregon area. Um, and we're talking about sending them months and months on a ship. It just seems really incredible to read it, that. They, it, <laughs> they is, think, it is. It is. I mean, they sent. It is back. crazy. They'd send back. He'd send back seeds, um, which he'd have to pack really carefully so that they wouldn't get damp and germinate en route. Um, and all then that he technology. also, yeah, and then he also sent back seedlings and sometimes bigger saplings um, of trees, and he put them in this thing called a ward case, wards case, which is a, it's like a miniature um, greenhouse that you can then you water it, you close it all up, it's all glass, and then the condensation um, waters the tree throughout the months it's on the ship, and because it's made of glass, you can take it up on deck and it'll get some sun, but it's complicated <laughs> difficult stuff so it was a, quite amazing that he did this and it would take you know three or four months to get to 
the UK, but the clearly there was some commercial value in this because the nursery did really well from it, and they started having you know put in more and more orders. And then when William Lobb heard about the giant sequoias, he thought, "Oh, this is great!" He went and saw them and went, "Wow, they're huge!" Um, wait till the wait till the English. Well, oh, they're going to love planting these, even though of course it takes a thousand years to get that big. But nonetheless, they. He thought, I'm going to take them back myself. So in the book, he um, Robert helps him get them to San Francisco, and then Lobb goes on with these saplings and seeds on a ship back to England because he knows that um, nobody's going to believe him that they're as big as they are unless he's actually there advocating for them. And they became very popular, um, and you can still see those sequoias and also redwoods come from California, still growing in the UK. It's a really wonderful story. Um, I think, too, he spent the time he spent down in uh, South America left him uh, a little bit wedgy. So yeah, his- he he had he went to England. He came back to California. There is some indication that he may have contracted syphilis at some point in South America. And he became very irritable, um, very difficult. He broke with the nursery he had worked with. And he died, I think, in 1863. And he's buried in Woodlawn Cemetery. Is that said somewhere outside in the Bay Area? Um, kind of an obscurity, sadly. Boy, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah, I know. So yes, he's a he's a unknown. Maybe maybe this will book book will resurrect him a little bit. I would think it should. I mean, he's he's a, a vivid character and seems yeah. like really important. And I think that this kind of the tension between the people and the balance between the trees is an interesting uh, narrative technique because yeah. all the parts that are in California seem very like it's a breath of cool, fresh air. And then when we get back in the swamp again, it's just sort of closed it, down. Yes, it's and really closed dank down. And, yeah, and, yeah. And I think your language uh, works well with that. Uh, did you kind of go back and forth when once you wrote it? Did you like go back and re revise it to to Gunge up the swamp. Maybe a little. I, it's funny because I didn't do it deliberately. Uh, uh-huh. I didn't change the vocabulary deliberately. I think it just kind of came out that way. So much of writing is instinctive. Mm. So you you do something like that without realizing that's what you're doing. And actually, that's probably for the best. Right. If you if you deliberately choose a symbol, it can often seem a little bit heavy-handed. So this, I think, I was just grasping at it instinctively. You know, there's a, a scene where. Um, James is kind of coming out of a fever. And I think that the way you describe that is so interesting because um, we realize now our experience would be totally different, and but we can understand his experience. And I think that the way that you have follow his internal experience, it's, an, it's just this wonderful effect that the historical novel creates of diffraction, I think. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I think now, um, you know, if we had a really high fever like that, we would take something for it. We take aspirin or whatever, and they, they can't really do that. Um, and so they just have to ride through it. And they all know they have these terrible fevers, and they know that all these kids have died, and people around them dying. So there's death is very close in this book, um, at least in the Ohio section. Um, and as you said, in a way, California, things are a little bit more expansive and lighter. There's more, there's like literally more sunlight, and everything seems, feels a little bit healthier, except for the miners. They're not so healthy. <laughs> <I know. laughs> um, 
I, I like the days, the, the, the next-door neighbors to the good enoughs, and I think they provide an interesting contrast. When you researched the kind of the people who lived around the Black Swamp, did you get a sense of the, did you get to find any records of any individual families? How close to the, you know, the original documents did you get on some of this stuff? I didn't, I got, it was secondary documents. Mm -hmm. I didn't do the primary research, but I read the books of the people who had done the primary research. So there were um, these various volumes of, of accounts of the Black Swamp where they had, found letters and journals and talked to people, um, oral uh, oral interviews, and these were all collected together. Um, but there were a lot of uh, a lot of references to how isolated the Black Swamp was. So your nearest neighbors might be two miles away. It's a long way, you know. So if you have something wrong, um, you you have to be very self-sufficient. There's a um, a feeling of the family having to deal with its own problems itself rather than reaching out to other people. Although having said that, there were na- these, these neighbors, the days do help them out um, um, and possibly help out a little too much. In, in, <laughs> <laughs> but yes, so there's, uh, there's a, a, a combination of relying on people and also being independent and able to look after yourself. Sadie is such an interesting character and I just want to circle back on her a bit mm-hmm. because she's a, a towering figure in the novel I think and, and uh, yeah. likely to be a, f- a fictional figure that will be remembered for a long time uh, poor, you, Sadie. Yeah, poor Sadie <laughs> <laughs> do you has this movie uh, been has this been uh, picked up for the movies not yet but we live in hope and I think Sadie is probably the um, the great attractive role for uh, an actress because um, she would just be so much fun to play. (laughs) Although it's, you know, she's not sympathetic. And I have had a couple of readers have responded like, oh, I really hated Sadie. I can't, oh, it's just awful. And, um, and I thought, I knew I was going to get that, but I think I was hoping that people might get a bit more out of her, that she's not actually as black and white as that sounds, that there, no. there were some gray to her as well. Um, and in some ways, she responds the way we all might being stuck in such a situation. Take to the bottle, for yeah. one thing, and uh, because it is, it is quite, it's such a hard life, and she has to, it's like self-medicating in a little uh, a way, um, taking to the cider and the applejack. Well, I think that uh, she's a character, even though she's flawed and in some ways unlikable, I I found her just really engagingly human. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, she is. And and actually, I found the sections writing her Mm -hmm. was by far the easiest part of it. Like if Mm -hmm. the whole novel had been her, I think you'd probably go insane because it's just a a voice (laughs) you don't want to have to sustain. But I could have written it really fast and easily if it were just her because she's... um, it, she has a very particular point of view, and it's quite easy to create that. Um, it's harder. You know, I've always uh, struggled a little between first person and third person. Mm-hmm. Um, I found first person, by and large, easier to do. Um, some writers don't, but I, I do. And uh, so Girl with a Pearl Earring, for instance, was all in first person, and um, quite a few of my books were until I finally thought, okay, let me see if I can crack third person. Because I always think of third person as being a more sophisticated technique. Because first person, you kind of know where you are with a 
it's it's from their point of view it's like looking out of their eyes and that's how you characterize the person and yes you can make your your first person narrator unreliable and you can have fun with that but it's quite easy to do that third person is much harder because you've got the narrator like the omniscient narrator looking at the scene and um and how do you do do you want it to be really omniscient so they see everything and they kind of can can go into the minds of everyone or do you just have it look over the shoulder of one character which is what I tend to do it's like limited third person and then what's the space between the narrator and the character and also what's the space between the narrator and the writer and playing with that space is really hard and it's hard to get it right and consistent and and make something of it so I've always felt that I wouldn't be a grown-up writer until I cracked that, cracked the third person. And I was always very self-conscious about it in the other times that I tried to, that I used third person, and I wasn't sure I was always successful. And this time, I just didn't worry about it. I just wrote, and it came out third person, except for Sadie, who is first person, and the letters, which are first person. Those were actually very easy to write, those sections, but um, I, I didn't agonize over the third person either. And I thought, gosh, at the ripe old age of 53, my, finally I'm maturing as a writer. I'm not agonizing anymore. So that was kind of a relief. It seemed like uh, there's a, what makes this novel uh, a novel and also just uh, very compelling that despite the character shifts and the perception shifts in the letters, there's a, you have a very strong thread of narrative yeah. that you're following all the way through here. And because you skip from place to place and time to time and, and do a couple of little loops back, I think that it's a pretty sophisticated narrative. And I, I think that that's a very interesting sense of story. We like to think of story start, middle, end. And yeah. you're kind of uh, playing with some time loops here. Yeah. And, you know, the way I do it um, so that it works, or I hope works, is – I write it in the order in which the reader reads it. So okay, it could have been very easy for me to write the whole Ohio section in one go and then cut it in half and write the whole California section in one go and cut it in half and then mix them up. But I didn't do it that way because I kind of want to go through it with the rhythm that the reader reads it. So uh, for me, I write very tight. Each sentence emerges out of the sentence before. The paragraphs emerge from the paragraphs before. So it's, um, if I'm going to add something in, I actually have to work quite hard to unpick the writing and insert mm -hmm. stuff. I do. I, I do that all the time with drafting and things. But I have a, I, I have a very clear sense of flow and of what, what works for people, um, what works for the reader. Uh, and so uh, that's why, um, even though, uh, so at Ohio, though, what you see is what you get with when you're reading it. Um, just remember that when you're reading it, you get to the end of the Ohio section, move on to California. That's exactly what I did. Wow. Well, that's why I think it it uh, loops together so nicely because you are following your own flow, and we are just following the flow that you. Yeah. It's, exactly. It's it's. it's um, the power of narrative is very interesting because it doesn't always go from straight from A to B. Sometimes it goes from A to B back to uh, A and a half and yeah. then up yeah. to D and then back to C. And 
I think that's more a description of what you're doing now. Yeah, something like that. But in order to make it work, you have to. I have to have the whole uh, feel organic, feel like it's one's pulling out of the other and looping back in a way that makes sense. And if I can't do it when I'm writing it, then you're not going to be able to follow it. So I have to write in the way that you're going to read it. Do you do all your research before you start the narrative? I, I do quite a lot. I do a big chunk of it for like six months um, so that I am aware of, I, I feel comfortable writing about the time and place uh, and the characters and even in the little details, social details of what they eat and how, you know, what they're sitting on, what their furniture is like, what their clothes are like, all that stuff. And then um, I start writing and once I start writing, that kind of brings up issues of other, you know, i I think, oh, I need to research grafting of trees. I hadn't realized I was going to need to know about it so much. So here's a scene. I better research that. And, oh, I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to set this in Calaveras Grove. I'd better go do some research on that. Um, so sometimes I've done it, but a lot of times the more specific detailed research I do as I'm going. You know, uh, one of the things I think that you do so well in this novel is really vivid in my memory is the clothes. Because they they are not just wearing Levi's and nice shirts, no. are they? <laughs> wearing sacks, burlap yeah. sacks. Yeah, well, that's, yeah, Johnny Appleseed <laughs> was known to wear coffee sacks uh -huh. and, and uh, a, belt, a belt as a piece of rope for a belt. And uh, a, a lot of hat. them, yeah, tin hat, and but also all of them, you know, wear pretty worn clothes. They have the same, the same clothes over and over, and they get incredibly muddy, and they kind of give up on trying to keep them clean because it's so hard to, and... Yeah, all that little detail is really important to me. I, it's important that I get it right. It's important that you feel I'm getting it right. You need to feel that I have the authority to tell you the story without making mistakes. So that's why I have to do so much research. Well, I think this, too, comes out of your super fine prose, which is uh, feels a little bit like uh, the way you described writing, and it made me think of the way it feels is like a piece of wood carved very nicely. Yeah. And uh, that's kind of prose that I really like to read. But I think, too, that this enables you to embed these details so that the characters and your omniscient narrator think about them in the way that they would think about them. That is not to say, oh, over here is this right. different thing. Right. It's just that it gets mentioned in passing. And for us, the things that are mentioned in passing um, our, we fill in all the details ourselves, and that's yeah. a really wonderful part of the reading experience. I, I've always been tried to be careful not to overload the books with, um, with too much historical detail. Mm. You have to use the detail that actually pushes the story and makes sense of the story. Um, so it sometimes means I have a lot more I could have said and don't. But I, I think it's really important for the reader to have space to fill in. So it's like a contract between me and you. I provide it, but you also fill in, too. So so you end up making the book your own rather than mine. Right. Well, it's the, I, to my mind, in some ways, the reading experience is like getting to be the director, producer of the movie, and you give us the wonderful the, something that's better than the script could ever be. Uh, for sure. I think uh, reading experience is definitely like making a little film in your head, and that's why... It's to me, it's more powerful than watching like an adaptation of a film of a book because uh, a film um, is is a sort of passive experience when you're watching it. It's somebody else's vision, and you don't really have much say in it. It just and it passes along in a in a rhythm at a speed that you can't control. I mean, I suppose you can pause it on your television if you're at home, but 
but not re- you know not much mm-hmm. and uh whereas a book you read at your own pace and you make up the film in your head so you're uh you have a idea you know the 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 descriptions of the characters are are only ever going to be 70% maybe and and the rest of it you fill in yourself and you make you make them your own um so that's why sometimes there's a very strange disjunction between once you've read a book and then you go see the film of it you think that's not what that character <laughs> looks like at all but it's um it's inevitable i think and i think in the end uh, if a book is good and strong you come back to it even if you've seen the film of it you you still go back to the own film you've made of the book in your head and with a book like this you can read it more than once and t- tease out different details and i think one of the things i i was just curious about historical novels have you thought about writing like a science fiction novel? I'm, because to me, it's the same skill. It's world building. It's totally the same skill. And I, I think um, I often think about why is it that I've chosen history? Because um, I, I like to write not about myself. Mm-hmm. So there are many directions I could go in if I'm not going to be autobiographical. I could go to the future. So mm-hmm. I could write science fiction. I could write crime novels because I don't actually commit crimes they're not that I'm going to tell you about and or I could um I could write a book set in Afghanistan where I've never been Mm -hmm. and I have to find out about it but I choose the past and um and I think that that that's uh I will never say never I think I'm probably unlikely to write about the future but you never know I I just know that I'm probably never going to write an autobiographical novel. It's always going to be something that's a little bit outside of my experience so that I can learn new things and find and and create a whole new world rather than base it on the world I already know. You want to create a new story, not retell your story. Yeah, exactly. That's the power of storytelling. It is. It is indeed. I've been speaking with Tracy Chevalier. Her new novel is At the Edge of the Orchard. Thank you for joining me, Tracy. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.